0: Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, talking with you once again about practical issues related to ministry leadership. Now today I'd like to start a short series of podcasts on my new book, Shadow Christians. Now that title may seem a little unusual, Shadow Christians, but the subtitle really explains the theme of the book, Making an Impact When No One Knows Your Name. I've been fascinated uh, through Bible study with the number of characters in the Bible who made a significant impact that were unnamed, are really anonymous. And I've also, as a leader, come to have a profound appreciation for the accomplishments that are possible in churches and ministry organizations, not because of the remarkable gifts of the leader, but because of the remarkable efforts and sacrificial work put forth by the followers. Now I mentioned this actually in my book, Leading Major Change in Your Ministry, and I wrote a good bit in that book about the importance of followers and the impact they can make uh, in a major change process. But this new book, Shadow Christians, takes it a step further. In this book I outline in much more detail what it means to be a shadow Christian, someone who works outside the spotlight, in the shadows but who can make a remarkable difference even when no one knows your name. Now, this book actually got started when I came across some guys in Acts chapter 11 who were the original church planters that started the church in Antioch. Now, I first discovered these men a number of years ago, and the Bible simply says, some men from Cyprus and Cyrene arrived in Antioch and began preaching the gospel. And, of course, they preached the gospel to the Gentiles, which was a major breakthrough in the history of the church. And it was at Antioch that the first Gentile church was birthed. It was at Antioch that the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith was really lived out and proved among people who, were, who had no Jewish heritage or background. Uh, it was at Antioch that the church first launched a modern missionary movement by sending out missionaries that they funded and brought back for accountability and for report and all of that. Uh, It was at Antioch that a team was organized to go to Jerusalem and work out the doctrine of salvation for really all time at the Jerusalem Council. So much happened at Antioch that's so consequential. In fact, in my book, The Case for Antioch, I actually made the case that Antioch was the most important church in the New Testament world. I actually think it's more important than the Jerusalem church, because of the impact that it made globally and the impact that it continues to make today as we continue to live out the example of taking the gospel to all people, particularly to the Gentiles. But I was fascinated by those guys, men from Cyprus and Cyrene. And I remember one day just putting my Bible down and looking up to heaven and sort of praying out loud this kind of prayer God, these are the most important church planters in the history of Christianity. And they couldn't get their name in the paper? I mean, they couldn't make the book? Now, that started me down a path of studying the unnamed or the anonymous people, and I had to limit it just to the Gospels and the Book of Acts, but the unnamed and anonymous people in the Gospels and Book of Acts who made a significant difference in our world. And I spent spent months uh, thinking about the idea, and actually I spent years studying these different characters, making lists and doing the research and analyzing the stories and just trying to find out all I could about these different people. Uh, You know, the the book was really built around answering these kinds of questions. Why are some biblical characters named and others not named? Did you know there's 170 people named in the New Testament? 170. And yet here are two, or here's a story of some preachers from Cyprus and Cyrene, these incredibly consequential men, and they didn't get their name in the paper. They didn't get their name in the book. I'm like, what is up with that? 170, including some people who are listed that you don't even know anything about them except their name. And yet when the history of the church is written, these guys get left out. Why are some biblical characters named and others not named? And then I started studying the gospels and I had this question why did Jesus call some people by name and leave others in anonymity I mean Jesus called people by their names and he knew their names and he knew their identity because of that and yet there's other people in the gospels that are very consequential to the story of Jesus and his ministry on earth that are not named like the woman at the well we couldn't get a name there I mean, Jesus talked to women all the time and called them by name. Why not that one? Here's another one, one of my favorites. What about the guy who had the colt that Jesus was going to ride into town on on Palm Sunday? Uh, what about that? I mean, what about the guy that was going to prepare the place for the disciples to have the Lord's Supper right before to celebrate the Passover right before Jesus went to the cross? What, what about that guy? I mean, listen, one of those stories Jesus said to his disciples, go into town, you're going to find a guy, he has a colt. I want you to untie it and bring it here. And when he stops you, say, hey, listen, the, the master needs it. And he'll say, no problem. Now, as I read that story, I wondered, Jesus, um, could you not have just told the disciples what that guy's name was? So that they could just go into town and ask for him or look for him. Or when they saw him, say, hey, and call his name. And then ask if they could take the cult. No, they didn't have any idea what his name would be. And then the, one, the, the fellow with the, with the upper room uh, for the Passover celebration. I, I actually talked about this one with one of our New Testament scholars here at the seminary. And he said, Jeff, that was actually an extravagant gift. An extravagant gift. He said, Real estate was so valuable in Jerusalem during the Passover, and rooms and restaurants and uh, inns and places like that were were so scarce that, that this would have been a very, very luxurious gift to reserve a room for men like that to come and celebrate the Passover. And Jesus told his disciples, go and prepare that room and tell them that we're ready, and they'll make it all right. And I wanted to say, as I read that story, But couldn't we at least know that guy's name, this generous Christian's name? And then there's other famous people in the stories like the leper and people like that 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 Jesus touched and healed and worked with, and yet no names. And so I wondered, why did Jesus call some people by name and leave others in anonymity? And then here's another question. Why are some people singled out by name for relatively inconsequential contributions, while others, not named, did things that changed the world. Again, you think about some of the people that Paul listed when he wrote his letters, like uh, Romans 16 has all those lists of people, greet so-and-so, tell so-and-so hi, you know, bring so-and-so to see me. And it's like, who are these people? We couldn't get the name of the, the leper that Jesus healed, or we couldn't get the name of the the, the guy who provided the upper room for the Passover celebration or the one who sent the colt for Jesus to ride into town. We, we couldn't get the name of that, that woman out there at the well. We, we couldn't get that name. And Huh. Why are some people named and some people not? Now, in the book, I, I make a joke about newspapers. Uh, You know, back in the day when dinosaurs roamed the earth, there was a thing called a newspaper and they printed the news on it every morning and threw it on your front porch and you'd go out there and pick it up and bring it in and read it. And I always explain this to uh, younger students here at the seminary and they think, wow, you live back in the dark ages. Yeah, I know I did. But you know, when I grew up, uh, we had a small town newspaper came out every day and what was in that paper was kind of a big deal. The whole town read it and the whole town talked about it. And to get your name in the paper was a really big deal. In fact, it's such a big deal that when I was 12 years old, I was on a Little League All-Star tournament that started winning and winning big, and we played all the way up to the state championship for the state of Texas. And our local newspaper chronicled that summer for our local Little League team, and my pictures in those articles, and my name is mentioned many times in those articles, and I clipped them, I saved them, and I still have them these 50 years later. Why? Because it was a big deal back then to get your name in the paper. And when that happened, it was a recognition of something significant that had happened in the community and happened in the lives of the people who were so mentioned. Well, with that background, I go back to the question, why are some people named and some people not named? Why are some people who did so much left out and others who did small things have their name included? And I come back to that question, <laughs> why did some people get their name, quote, in the paper and others not? So that started me on a process of studying all of this and trying to come up with some conclusions, and the results are this book called Shadow Christians. In the book, <clears throat> I try to write with these two questions in mind. Why are some biblical characters named, unnamed and what, what can we learn from their stories? But then more importantly... How can Christians who serve in the shadows today make a significant difference? You see, that's what the book is really all about. I want people to understand that they may that they are able to make a significant, consequential difference, even though they may not have millions of Twitter followers. Nobody reads their Instagram stories, but their very closest friends. They don't have anybody uh, that's checking them out on Facebook. They can still make a significant difference. So that's how the book starts, but then I move into uh, some other descriptions of how God relates to people in the shadows, and I, I make three broad assertions in chapters 2, 3, and 4. One is that God knows us intimately, and then another is that God loves us tenderly, and then finally that God values us highly. And I delve into all of these stories uh, in the Bible that help us understand all of these different aspects of how God relates to us who are in the shadows. Now, one of the things I'll just highlight today on the podcast is that I became fascinated with the number of people that Jesus touched in the Bible who do not have their names included in the stories. Now, touching is very significant. Uh, it's an intimate act. Uh, even a pat on the shoulder means a relationship has moved to a higher level of comfort or familiarity. And, you know, and meaningful touches... Uh, soothe crying babies assure worried parents a stroking someone's head or hair you know brings them comfort holding hands communicates companionship and couples you know rest easy in each other's embrace and, and calmly share personal space being willing to to touch because touching equates with intimacy and as i said I, I became fascinated in studying jesus's relationship with these unnamed people throughout the bible the number of people that jesus touched and then also the number of people that Jesus allowed to touch him. Now probably one of the best known stories of this is uh, the woman who came to Jesus while she was reclining at the Pharisee's house for dinner and, and she brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him and cracked open that jar and started washing his feet with it. And while she was doing that she was weeping and was washing his feet with her tears and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume and rubbing them with his hair. You know, that's a moving story, a poignant story of Jesus allowing someone to have very intimate contact with him. And you know how the Pharisees reacted. They became angry and demanded that she stop and all kinds of other things like that. And you know some of that. But when I studied the story this time, I wasn't really looking at what the Pharisees said. I was more looking at what the woman did. And even beyond that, I was thinking, how is it? That this woman was able to have such an intimate moment with Jesus, weeping, washing, kissing, caressing his feet, and yet her name is never mentioned. Never mentioned. Such a significant person, unnamed in biblical history. But then on the other side of it, not only did Jesus allow people to touch him, but Jesus also touched many people. Now, uh, here's just a few examples, you know, the, the blind man, a, a blind, two, uh, two blind men approached Jesus and asked for healing and, and uh, he said he would heal them and then he, the Bible says he touched their eyes and their eyes were open. And then two other blind men were sitting by a road outside Jericho and they were calling out Lord have mercy on us and then it says Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they could see. And then Jesus met another blind man, and he, t- he did something really unusual. He, he, spit it, he spit on his eyes, and he laid his hands on him. And then that man was healed. He's the famous one who said, I see people like trees walking. And, then, and Jesus touched him again, and then he was able to see clearly. And then uh, those were just the blind guys Jesus dealt with. And then another time, a deaf man came to Jesus. And so Jesus took him aside, and what did he do? He said, the Bible says he put his fingers in the man's ears and spitting, get this now, he touched his tongue. Now, think about that. Jesus put his fingers in the man's ears and then reached around and touched his tongue. Now, these are all anonymous, unnamed people that Jesus touched. He touched the blind, the deaf, the mute. He, he, he wiped spit on people. He got earwax on his fingers. He, he put his fingers in someone's mouth. Look, you cannot get any more personal than this. And then there's other stories like the woman who touched the hem of Jesus' robe and the throngs of people that crowded around Jesus touching him. And all of this illustrates that Jesus is both touchable and a toucher of people. Now, I'll stop with all the stories and just get to the point. Jesus knows us intimately, and he wants to have that kind of relationship with us. He knows us so intimately and wants such an intimate relationship with us that he touches us and allows us to touch him. Wow. These shadow Christians, these unnamed anonymous people in the Bible that Jesus dealt with, they meant so much to him, and he allowed them so close to him that this touching was a part of their reality, even though their names are never mentioned. Now, Another part of this first section of the book I mentioned is that Jesus loves us tenderly. You know, another interesting group of uh, unnamed, anonymous people that Jesus deals with in the Bible are children and the parents of hurting children. Jesus encountered several families in the New Testament whose names are never recorded who had a child in crisis. There was a boy that was sick, too sick to come to Jesus. His father came and asked Jesus for his healing, and Jesus granted it. Uh, that's just one example. Uh, Jesus healed uh, the son of other officials, of secular leaders and secular rulers. Another desperate father once came to Jesus. His son was having seizures from being demon-possessed, and Jesus uh, delivered him. Uh, you know, uh, another... Another sick child that came to Jesus, it seemed like it was too late. He had died. And what did Jesus do? He he called him back from the dead. He resuscitated him. Think about that. Jesus cares a lot about children. He heals children. He touches them and cares for them and restores them. In fact, he even gave one his life back. When I read through that, I I, I was fascinated by, these, by my study of all of the times that Jesus dealt tenderly with children and with the parents of hurting children. And in all these cases, their names are not included. And that touches me and reminds me of how much Jesus tenderly loves me. You know, we don't we don't get loved by Jesus because we're rich or because we're famous or because we're well-known or because we're highly gifted. We're loved by Jesus tenderly because he sees us like children. He sees us like children who, who want to be loved and cared for and, 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 and he knows we need that. and, And he gives us that kind of tender touch. So I'm just so grateful, uh, For the stories about how Jesus dealt with children and the parents of hurting children and what that can mean, you know in our lives And then the last uh, part of the first section of the book is about how God highly values those of us Who live and work in the shadows and I give a lot of different aspects of this but uh, just one that sort of uh, Illustrates it is you know not only does Jesus highly value all these people, but when he starts describing the church he later, as Paul writes about it, describes the unseemly or the unknown members of the church as being of higher value. And he actually uses a medical illustration or a, medical, a physical body illustration to get to that point. You know, he says that the, the unseemly or the unnamed members of the body are actually more significant sometimes than those that are well known. You know, I've, I've had this illustration shown so vividly in my life. In 1994, I was diagnosed with cancer. And I had uh, two cancer surgeries and was uh, completely healed of cancer over that ex- through that experience. And, and that's been great. And I've gone on now the rest of my life cancer-free. But as a result of my second cancer surgery, these little uh, glands in my neck called parathyroid were damaged. And in fact, mine stopped functioning. Now, you probably don't even know you have parathyroid. But parathyroid, these little glands that are next to your thyroid, and they're very important because they control your body's absorption of calcium. Now, calcium's really important more than just for your bones. Calcium's important because it's one of the minerals that your body uses for nerve transmissions or to send signals, you know, from nerve to nerve to keep things functioning properly. Well, I, uh, when your body uses calcium, it uses calcium to keep things like your heart pumping and your lungs breathing, those kind of muscles working on a regular basis. Well, when you're low on calcium, your body starts shutting down and you get tingling in your hands and feet. And then if you get to a second level that's more serious, you start getting facial tics. And then the third level is you get some contortions. In other words, your, your, your fingers and your toes just curl or, or freeze because your body's stopping the use of calcium in those areas to save calcium for your inner core. And if you get past tingling in your hands and feet and ticks in your face and get to contortions in your, hands and toe, or your fingers and toes, you need immediate medical help because your body is saving calcium for your heart and lungs and you're about to die. Well, I've been up to facial tics. I, I've definitely struggled for 25 years with a uh, loss of feeling in my hands and feet. Uh, when I'm low on calcium, my hands and feet start tingling, and I have to get some calcium in my body pretty quickly after that. Uh, I've had facial tics, but not very often, which is good, because that would indicate I was having even a more serious problem. And uh, I take calcium every morning, uh, three, three big pills, and every night three big pills before I go to bed. Uh, and then during the day, like I said, if I start having some problems, I have to eat some Tums or yogurt or something like that just to make sure that I keep calcium in my system so that my body always has access, it to, access to it as it leaches in, through my intestines and all of that. But my body doesn't process uh, calcium. That thing, that parathyroid that's supposed to send out that signal that says, you know, capture and hold calcium, it just doesn't work in my body any longer. And so for 25 years, I've had the hassle of having to maintain this vigilant watch on my calcium level because my parathyroid don't work. It's been a perfect example to me of what the Bible says about how God highly values um, that which we can't see and that which we don't even know about because it's so important to our function. And he uses that illustration in the church, and I've certainly lived it out and experienced it uh, in my physical body. So when I wrote Shadow Christians, uh, I was writing it against the backdrop of the fact that so many people in the Bible accomplished so much of consequence, or so many people in the Bible were in such an interesting relationship with Jesus, and yet their names are never mentioned. They are the unnamed, anonymous people who made such a difference, such a difference in their world. Shadow Christians, making a difference when no one knows your name. And when I wrote this, I was trying to say to people who work in the shadows, you really matter. Uh, You are highly valued. You are tenderly loved. You are intimately related by God. He wants this kind of relationship with you. You know, in our celebrity driven culture, there's this subtle uh, principle or subtle expectation that if you're not famous, if you're not well-known, if you're not an influencer, if you don't have a big Twitter account with a lot of followers, you really don't matter. And we're fascinated by celebrityism, and we've diminished the reality that people who are not well-known can and do make a significant difference every single day. Now, in the next couple of podcasts, I'm going to talk in much more detail about the kind of difference shadow Christians can make. But today I just want to introduce it to you. But then beyond that, I want to introduce it to you as a ministry tool because one of the things I did when I wrote Shadow Christians was embedded in the book. It's free, uh, a, a small group curriculum that will help churches to use this material to teach their members of the high value they have and the significant accomplishments they can achieve, and the importance they are, and how important they are not only to God and His kingdom, but to the church and its function. And so Shadow Christians is not just a book about all these things, but it's also a ministry tool that you can use to train, motivate, and inspire the shadow Christians in your church to make, to make a much more significant difference in our world. You know, shadow Christians are who get the work done. Shadow Christians are the ones who change the diapers and mow the grass and fill the baptistry. Uh, shadow Christians are the ones who drive, who are the ones who drive the vans on youth mission trips, and they're the ones who, uh, you know, sing in the choir and not the solos, and they're the ones who pass the offering plates and do the the work that really makes church function. You know, shadow Christians are the ones who teach the preschool classes and go out and make the visits to win lost people to faith in Christ. These people are the ones who are actually getting the work done. And while the spotlight leader may be on the platform and may have his or her name on the program and may be the one that everyone's looking to on on the website and all of that. Now, I'm not uh, diminishing the importance of spotlight leaders. Look, I've written, what, seven books for leaders? I believe in leaders. But I'm trying to bring some balance to that and say while leaders are important, shadow Christians, shadow Christians, the people who work in the shadows, outside the spotlight, They are making a significant and dramatic difference in our world, and hopefully the study guide that's built into the book will enable small group leaders, Sunday school classes, discipleship groups, men's groups, women's groups, to take the book and do more than just read it together, but also take the questions at the end of each chapter and talk in detail about what they mean and what kind of difference or impact they can make and how they can be motivated and inspired to even greater levels of Christian service and devotion. Shadow Christians, I hope we hear a lot about this in the next few months as we try to reinvigorate what it means to energize the people of God to get the work done. Yes, we believe in leaders. Yes, spotlight leaders are important. Yes, God does call some people to step to the front and say, follow me. Certainly those people are important. I've written a handful of books to try to support their work and do a podcast every week to try to help them get their job done. If you're one of those spotlight leaders, you're the one out front, people know your name, you're... Your picture is on the website. Uh, You do have some Twitter followers. Look, this tool is a tool you can use to motivate the hundreds, if not thousands of people you're trying to influence to raise themselves up to a higher level of inspiration and devotion and effectiveness as they do the work that God has called you all to do together. Spotlight leaders are important, but shadow Christians, unnamed, anonymous, highly valued, tenderly loved, intimately known. Shadow Christians are the people who vitally expand God's kingdom. We need to do more to talk about this and to train them in their effectiveness. I hope you'll take advantage of this tool as you lead on.